This is the Bigger Pockets Podcast, show 645. The way I've always approached life or any goal that I have is that there's going to be something about me that has to change to be successful in whatever I want. So if, for instance, I want a better body, I'm going to have to change my eating habits and my workout habits. I'm going to have to go to the gym and develop different muscles or stronger muscles to get what I'm looking for. If you're looking to save money in taxes, you can use some strategies that work with your current W-2 situation, but it is much harder. It would be much easier for you if you found ways to make income that were not beholden to the W-2 world. What's going on, everyone? This is David Green, your host of the Bigger Pockets Real Estate Podcast, here today with a Seeing Green edition of the podcast. On these episodes, we take questions from you, our fan base, and those that we are trying to help grow wealth, and I answer them in person, myself, giving the best advice that I possibly can, and then we let everybody else hear how the information was disseminated, what my advice was, and most importantly, what I was thinking when I gave it. The goal with this is to help you overcome the obstacles that you're facing in your investing career, give you information to better equip you to build wealth, and make a connection with you, because I love you guys, and I know you love bigger pockets, so we're happy to join. In today's show, we get into some really cool stuff. One of the things is we bring in some private lenders and you get a special treat. You're gonna get private lending advice from people who wrote the book on private lending for bigger pockets. So you're definitely gonna enjoy that. I also talk about how to get out of the fear box when you're scared and every step that you wanna take in a different direction gives you something else to be scared about and it bounces you back to right where you started. And then we get into when to sell, when to hold, when to bail, and when to fold. So one of our questions is all about, should I keep my house? Should I sell my house? If I sell it, what should I do with it? What's happening in this crazy market? And I take my best stab at that. All this along with some tax advice and some other specialists joining me for backup on this episode. You don't want to miss it. Really glad you're here. But before we get into the show, today's quick tip, go to biggerpockets.com slash podcasts. You see, all the different Bigger Pockets podcasts have their own show pages where you can get cool free content. If you want to learn how to build a bigger brand for yourself, well, at biggerpockets.com slash RE show, you can get a masterclass from Brandon Turner on how to do just that. We've also got lots of freebies like Scott Trench, this, the author of Set for Life and the Bigger Pocket CEO, has a free rookie checklist. Amy Majuri has information on a four-second power pitch for raising money. Dave Meyer has data drops with relevant information that you need to make good decisions investing in this market and more. So visit biggerpockets.com slash podcast, check out your favorite show and see what free goodies we have for you there. Passive income without the property headache? It's possible. There's a way to invest passively in real estate and get monthly income without any tenants, maintenance, or property management. The wealthy have been doing this for years, and if you're an accredited or high net worth investor, you too can collect cash flow without the headaches that come from owning rentals. How? By investing in a private real estate fund with PPR Capital Management. PPR's co-founder, Dave Van Horn, wrote the book on real estate note investing for BP. But he's not just investing in notes. Dave and his team also have an extensive background in commercial real estate. And with PPR Capital Management, they're strategically investing in both notes and commercial real estate nationwide. With over half a billion dollars in assets under management, PPR has provided individuals with a steady source of truly passive income since 2007 without ever missing a payment. Check them out at investwithppr.com. Again, if you're looking to get monthly passive income from an experienced team with a strong track record, go to investwithppr.com today. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. 
And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Real estate investing is great, but for some, the tenant phone calls and clogged toilets aren't all that attractive. So how do you invest in real estate without getting your hands dirty? Invest for truly passive income with Pine Financial Group. Pine's mortgage fund offers a targeted 8% preferred return and an attractive profit split with 70% of net profits going to the investors. You'll earn passive income by participating in lending to house flippers. And it's secure because senior lien holders, that's you, are first in line to get paid. Their rigorous underwriting process and the backing of a physical asset mitigate downside risk. Plus, by investing with Pine Financial Group, you contribute to the revitalization of communities by directing your funds from Wall Street to Main Street and supporting local economies. The investment is reserved for accredited investors. Take control of your investments and secure more passive income today. Visit pinefinancialgroup.com slash biggerpockets to learn more about the fund. That's pinefinancialgroup.com slash biggerpockets. All right, let's bring in our first question. This is Tom Wheelwright. I'm the best-selling author of The Win-Win Wealth Strategy, Seven Investments the Government Will Pay You to Make. And we have a question from Parshant. And the question is, can we use unused depreciation against income from a salary job? So I'd like to change the question to how can we use unused depreciation against income from a salary job? Um, the answer is yes, there are certain things that you do have to do. Um, so either, for example, you have to be active in the real estate and not have very much income from your salary job, or you could be a real estate professional. Those are very specific um, tests. Or um, there are a few other things that you can do that are going to require, frankly, some work with your tax advisor. Um, the, the challenge is you can never use more than 500000 of of losses from real estate or business against your uh, salary. That is a strict limitation. Hey, hey, thank you for that reply, Tom. That is some very good advice and also very specific. So since Tom has handled the specifics of this, I will take a more general approach with my two cents. The way I've always approached life or any goal that I have is that there's going to be something about me that has to change to be successful in whatever I want. So if, for instance, I want a better body, I'm going to have to change my eating habits and my workout habits. I'm going to have to go to the gym and develop different muscles or stronger muscles to get what I'm looking for. If you're looking to save money in taxes, you can use some strategies that work with your current W-2 situation, but it is much harder. It would be much easier for you if you found ways to make income that were not beholden to the W-2 world. So I don't think you have to quit your job and just start a brand new venture, but can you look for ways to earn income that would be reported differently than W-2 that is much easier to shelter with the current tax rules that we have? This is why I'm a big proponent of stop looking at it like, should I go W-2 or should I go full-time investing? There's a whole spectrum in between. You could become a loan officer. You could become a real estate agent. You could become a title officer. You could start a construction company. You could get into pool service. You could be like Tom and become a CPA. There are so many different ways that you can serve in the real estate field and earn income that are different than a W-2 job. And many of these will give you the flexibility to work that opportunity while still having a W-2 job and still investing in real estate. So if you're passionate about real estate, find something within the scope of real estate that you really love, like what I've done, and work that. 
And if I can help you with that, Prashant, please let me know. I'd be happy to connect you with someone from one of my companies if you'd like to do that within the world I'm in. And maybe you could reach out to Tom and ask the same. All right, our next question comes from Darby in West Central Missouri. I will summarize Darby's question. He is currently in his mid-40s, owns 13 doors made up of single and multifamily properties. His question is rooted in the phrase seasons of life. When Darby started his real estate journey, he was a single man with no children and plenty of free time. Fast forwarding 20 years, he is now happily married with three children and a full-time job in healthcare. He now has an investment portfolio to manage and maintain and a hobby farm to look after. Needless to say, Darby is very busy, but he's still hungry and wants to continue scaling his investment portfolio. He loves the passive income stream that it has provided and the increase in equity he's seen during this inflationary time period that we're in. Darby has a very solid debt-to-income ratio, still has some cash reserves, and a lot of equity that he can deploy from what he's seen, particularly due to inflation in his portfolio. He doesn't need cash flow because he has several steady income streams, but would like to focus on long-term appreciation. Darby also mentions that he prefers investing locally because investing out of state appears daunting. He would like to invest in an extremely, but that in all caps, passive way where I could still balance my career and family whilst, while also scaling my portfolio. Interested in your advice, David, and perspective on my investing future, and I would love to hear your thought on an upcoming podcast. Keep up the good work. All right, Darby, so let's talk about a few things here. You did a very good job of laying out what your goals are, so I appreciate that. You also laid out the challenges. And the bad news in this is that most of what you're describing here is you want to have your cake and eat it too. You want to have extremely passive income. You also want it to be uh, something that's going to grow inflationarily. And you also don't need cash flow. And then you don't want to invest out of state. But you mentioned you're in West Central Missouri. Now, I'm not an expert on your area. But when I just think off the top of my head about West Central Missouri, I don't picture any rapid appreciation type of environment happening in that location. If you're looking for appreciation, there's two ways that you get it. You have forced appreciation. That would be finding a property and adding value to it. In the multifamily space, this would be increasing the NOI. Uh, and you do that by increasing rents and lowering expenses. That's going to take quite a bit of your time, which you've also mentioned you don't want to do. The other way outside of forced appreciation would be natural appreciation, and this would be investing in a market that is seeing increasing demand, but steady supply or restricted supply, so that the scarcity of the resources that everybody wants makes the prices go up. And that is an actual legit concrete method that you can use to put appreciation in your favor. Appreciation is not always the same as speculation, which is just hoping that prices go up. There's actually things that you can do and decisions that you can make that put the odds in your favor of that happening. That's one of the ways that I'm investing. And it sounds like you want the same. The problem with forced appreciation is it's going to take time and effort, which you've said you don't want to do. The problem with natural appreciation is you're going to have to pick a market outside of Missouri. And that's also something that you've said you don't want to do. You're also in a position with golden handcuffs. So you've got income coming in. You don't need to do this, but you'd like to do this. So you are in a position that I often call the fear box. And it's not the perfect analogy because it, I don't know if you're necessarily afraid, but it works the same way for people that are. So imagine that you're in the middle of a box or maybe a field and you don't like where you are in life. So you want to go somewhere else and you're looking outside and you're like, oh, I could go there. I could go there. Anywhere's better than where I am. Which direction do I want to go? And you start walking in that direction and then you hit something that scares you. 
It's like an electric fence in that field. Ooh, I don't want to go out of state. Okay, I'm going to come right back to where I was. And then you start walking in a different direction. Ooh, that looks like it's too much work. I don't want to go there. And you start walking back to where you were. You start going in a different direction. Ooh, that looks like it's got a little bit too risk. I don't want to go there. And you bounce around from all the things that you find that you don't like. And you find yourself exactly where you started in the very middle of this field. And you're still not happy with where you're at. And I understand that is why you reached out and you submitted this question to us here at Bigger Pockets on the Seeing Green Edition, and I appreciate that. But what I'm getting at is you're going to have to let go of something. You're not going to pull this off with all the restrictions that you're putting on yourself. If you want something super passive, you're probably not going to get a lot of appreciation unless you go into a market where you can get that. There's plenty of markets I could give you right now where I'm saying, hey, you could buy a property. It's not going to cash flow a ton. It's probably going to go up a lot in value. And in the future, it's going to cash flow ridiculously well. But that means investing out of state. Or I could say, hey, you can create a ton of appreciation by buying a property and adding value to it. But that's not going to be extremely passive. So I think rather than trying to find an investment that doesn't exist, you'd be better off to say, of everything I'm worried about, investing out of state, putting a lot of work into what I'm going to be doing, needing appreciation, not wanting a whole bunch of effort to be spent. You're going to have to let go of something. You have to make peace with that. My advice would be to let go of the fear of investing out of state. I think that's the easiest hurdle of everything you mentioned to get over. So I think you should find an area that a lot of either Californian or New Yorkers are moving to. This could be uh, like the area of Texas, maybe Dallas or Frisco. You like to see a lot of appreciation there. Austin, I think, still has a lot of room to run. Uh, South Florida is exploding right now. You've got a ton of opportunity in that market. You've got areas uh, in suburbs around Nashville or around Atlanta that we're going to likely continue to see a lot of really strong growth. I think Savannah, Georgia is primed to do really well as more people move there. And both South and North Carolina have a ton of opportunity that I would expect continued appreciation from businesses and people that are moving there. You would then find a property in one of the best neighborhoods that you could and hire a property manager to manage it. Maybe you get a short-term rental and you pay somebody 25% of the revenue to manage it for you. And that 25% may have been your profit margin. So you're not going to cash flow a ton. But by buying in the best neighborhood that you possibly can and getting the best property that you possibly can and waiting, the revenue will slowly grow every year and the property will likely continue to appreciate if you buy in the right area. That would be the simplest solution that I can recommend to you for how you can achieve the appreciation that you want without a ton of work. But you're going to have to accept that you're walking outside of investing in your state. Another option would be investing in someone else's fund. You could invest in a syndication. You can invest in a fund like Brandon's at ODC and just give someone else your money and let them grow it. That's going to be very passive for you. But I don't think you could say you're getting appreciation. You're getting a return. This is now becoming more like cash flow. So as you can see, there isn't going to be the perfect investment vehicle for everything that you want. And that's probably why you're stuck in the middle of the fear box because every single direction that you start walking in, there's something that you don't like about it. So in order to create a path for yourself out of it, I'll summarize my advice here. Figure out what you are most okay with compromising on and go in that direction. My advice would be to invest in a growing market. Don't worry as much about cash flow. Pick the because you've already got a lot of cash flow. Pick the best neighborhood, the best property, in the best market that you can, and let time do its thing. Hey Dave, John Rambari from Orlando, Florida. Here, I've been listening to Bigger Pockets for roughly about three years now, and uh, I have a question that probably a lot of people are asking, which is, 
do I sell? So some background, I bought this place just over a year ago. It's my one and sole property at the moment. However, I bought it for the equity growth and it has grown. I have about 100K of equity in it at the moment and uh, kind of want to get into a new living situation, cut my living expenses in half and I want to move into some cash flowing units. However, the market's so crazy right now. One of the options I see is maybe selling this place, pulling out my liquid asset from it, keeping it aside, and maybe six to 12 months when this place looks, well, when the market looks a whole lot better, making some big deals on three, four, five places. My other option is to refinance, but the numbers aren't 100% there. Give me your thoughts. How do I make this market work for me when I have a high equity property? Thank you. All right, thank you for that, John. Let's break down some of what you have proposed. First off, if you sell and then rent or live with someone else and wait for the market to what you said improve, which I assume you mean prices are coming down and cash flow opportunities will arise, you're taking a pretty big gamble that that's going to happen. So I know there's a lot of people out there saying a crash is coming, get out of real estate, wait, and it could happen. I'm not here to say it can't happen or it won't happen. But I would ask a couple questions. What would make that happen? A lot of people say, well, interest rates continuing to rise is going to push home values down. Let's say that's true because it very well could be. The reason that it's pushing home values down is because it's making it more expensive to own them. So if that does happen and home values come down, you're still not going to achieve the cash flow you want because your mortgage payment is going to be that much higher. Like You don't really avoid the problem of cash flow by just having the market have home values drop. So I don't know that that's the best strategy. Like even if you do get a house at a cheaper price, your mortgage will be higher, you're not going to cash flow. And then if it doesn't happen, well now you just got out of your asset and now you've got nothing and then the market took off on you. I would probably be looking at hedging your bets. So if I was in your position, I would first ask if I moved out of the house I have now, would it cash flow? I'm assuming the answer is no, and that's why you're not talking about that. So the next question is, what would have to be different about this house so it would cash flow? And oftentimes, the answer to that question is, I would need more units. What if you had a single family home with a garage conversion and a separate unit in the back, or a duplex with an ADU, or a house with two levels with separate entrances that also has an ADU, something where you could get more than one unit out of your property? In that situation, it probably will cash flow. So what if you sold the house you're in now and you found a new property that was like that, something that had more than one unit that would make more cash flow for you? You could then buy that property with the low down payment as a primary residence homeowner. This would allow you to get out of a house that doesn't cash flow into a house that could cash flow if you didn't live in it and probably will still have a cheaper mortgage than what you have now if you are living in it. And it would allow you to save that nest egg, that liquidity that you mentioned to the side in case the market does go down. I like that overall approach. Now, what if the market doesn't go down? Well, you could just look for other properties to buy. You could buy a property that does cash flow. You could buy yourself a short-term rental, and then you could have two properties instead of one. You basically eliminated all of the things that could go wrong. You don't have to worry about the market taking off on you. You don't have to worry about if the market crashes and not having enough capital. You've improved your situation. So if you do move out of the new house that you buy, it will cash flow and it will become 
a rental property and you open doors to let yourself buy a new investment property that like a possible short-term rental that could earn you more cash and get you more experience investing in real estate. So uh, this is advice that I often give when people are in an either or situation, try to be creative and look for a way to get away from either or to give yourself multiple options. I always feel better having multiple options, especially if you've got a lot of equity because you don't have to move all that equity from one house into a new house. You can often spread it out amongst a couple, like you mentioned. Hope that helps and let us know how that goes. All right, we've had some great questions so far and I wanna thank everybody for submitting. Please continue to submit your questions at biggerpockets.com slash David. And in addition to doing that, please continue to comment on YouTube. And this segment of the show, I like to read some of the comments that you all have left on Bigger Pockets YouTube page and see what you're thinking. Comment number one comes from Stephanie Mokris. Okay, I'm officially addicted to the Bigger Pockets podcast. I'm a travel nurse with a one hour and 20 minute commute, and I love listening to you guys while driving. Thank you for all the value provided to your audience. I do have a question regarding this series. What is the strategy used to pay the private lenders back? I can see in a flip or a burr, but how about if the borrower used the private money for a turnkey property? Okay, that's not just a comment. It's a comment mixed with a question. That's pretty cool. We got a little hybrid here. Thank you for that, Stephanie. All right, when I borrow private money, which I do pretty frequently, there's been a lot of people that have been sending me money and then I pay them a return. I kind of set it up like a bank. So instead of it at the end of when I pay them money back, they get it with interest. While I have their money, I just deposit the interest into their account every single month. So they get access to that capital. It almost functions like passive income and it's as passive as possible because they don't do anything. They just get a check or actually not even get a check because they'd have to deposit that. They get a direct deposit into their account. All they have to do is pull up the app on their phone and check to see that they made money. And I can pay that money back in several ways. Oftentimes, it could come from the refinance of a property. It could come from the refinance of a different property, and then I could use that money to pay back that person's loan. It could also come from the good old-fashioned way of me just earning more money, right? I borrow money because I make money in several different ways, and so I have it coming in at all different times, and I can pay back loans just by saving up money and paying it back. It could come from money that I have in reserves that in a worst case scenario, I could just pull it out of reserves and I could pay somebody back their capital. It could come from selling a property or a couple other properties. At any given time, I have several properties that I own free and clear. And I could refinance those and reinvest the money, but I'd rather borrow the money from other people, get them paid passively, develop a relationship with them, and then keep the equity that I have in my properties as a safety net. So I could always refinance those and pay it back. To your point, you said, what if someone borrows money to buy a turnkey property? That could be dangerous because turnkey properties are typically not coming with any equity. So a refinance is usually not an option. They're often in areas that don't appreciate as much. Not every one of them, but turnkey companies tend to operate in mass in low appreciation, but high cash flow markets. So if that's something that you do, you are going to have to have a plan for how you get that money back or else you're going to have to sell to repay the person. And you don't know where the market's going to be when you go to sell. Now that's becoming risky. In general, if someone isn't making a lot of income, isn't saving money, and doesn't have a plan to pay back their investor, they probably shouldn't be using private money, and they definitely shouldn't be doing it to buy a turnkey property. Next comment comes from Dakota Slatten. I love the content. I'm 20 years old. These videos give me great pointers to get my foot in the door. Greatest podcast all around. Ah, thank you for that, Dakota. I appreciate your sweet words there. Hopefully we continue to impress you and do our job of holding your attention and giving you value. 
Last comment comes from Pure Unwind ASMR. This was related to the Amy Missouri podcast we just did on raising private money. This is so powerful, and I'm going to rewatch all four when they're available. Thank you so much for this. Well, that feels good to hear too. I'm glad we are providing value and helping improve your lives because that's all that really matters in this entire world of beautiful chaos that we live in. All right, we love it and we appreciate your engagement. Please continue to do so. Like, comment, subscribe on YouTube. And if you're listening to this podcast on an app, please give us an honest rating and review there. Whether it's iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, let us know what you think about the podcast and give us a rating. It helps us reach more people. Thank you very much for that. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my 9-to-5 job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Whether you need to buy or sell, or you're just obsessed with looking at homes for sale, Redfin's got you covered. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes to help you see new homes first. And they give you personalized recommendations based on the homes you like, so you can find a home that's just right for you, whether that's a cabin, a craftsman, or a castle. With the top-rated Redfin app, you can favorite homes, share listings with others, and schedule tours even on the same day with a local Redfin agent who can help guide you through the whole home buying process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents have the experience to help you get the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put towards what matters most to you, like your next home. In fact, last year, Redfin saved home sellers $127 million. No matter where you are in your real estate journey, Redfin can help. Download the Redfin app to get started today. You're ready to open a business bank account for your new property. You know what that means. Coordinating a time between you, your co-founders, and your bank consultant. Waiting at the branch or waiting for hours on the support line. Who has time for that? With Relay, you can open a business bank account for your property 100% online from anywhere. Create up to 20 accounts to organize money by property or by categories like expenses, taxes, or investments. Effortlessly collaborate with role-specific access. That means giving your cleaner a debit card for cleaning supplies or your accountant read-only access to your transactions. Own multiple businesses? Relay lets you open unlimited accounts and access them all from one centralized login. Okay, I'm just, I'm going off script here. That is cool. It's annoying that I have to log into 10 business accounts with my current bank. So go sign up for RelayFi because that's a, that's a feature that I like. No monthly fees or minimums, and it takes just 10 minutes to sign up. Head on over to RelayFi.com slash BiggerPockets for stress 
stress-free banking. You can join me because I'm heading on over there right now. I'm heading on over to R-E-L-A-Y-F-I.com slash biggerpockets. Relay is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by ThreadBank, member FDIC. The Relay Visa debit card is issued by ThreadBank pursuant to a license from Visa USA Inc. and may be used everywhere Visa debit cards are accepted. Every lender loves to talk about how easy it is to get a mortgage. Then when it's time to fund your next deal, they ask for your full financials, your blood type, your mother's famous spaghetti recipe, and a map to the fountain of youth. Sound familiar? You got all that handy, right? Why not switch to a lender who actually makes qualifying for a loan easy? A lender like Host Financial. Host Financial takes the tedious tax returns, endless W-2s, and time-consuming financial requests out of the picture. Their light dock and common sense underwriting guidelines mean frictionless transactions every time. You'll even be able to use the actual or projected income of the short-term or long-term rental you're looking to purchase or pull equity out of. That's what lending built for investors looks like. So take the next step and grow your portfolio faster. Visit hostfinancial.com to request a quote in as fast as 60 seconds, which is faster than this ad. If not, it's pretty close. That's host, H-O-S-T, financial.com. Again, that's host, H-O-S-T, financial.com. I recently had the pleasure of meeting Alex Bashirs and Beth Johnson, Bigger Pocket Publishing's newest authors who wrote a book, Invest to Live, about how to raise private capital or use uh, private lenders to grow your portfolio. And I thought it would be a good idea to bring them in as some backup here to help me answer questions, particularly about raising capital, and borrowing money to invest in real estate. So let's see what they have to say. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining me. We are going to jump right into this. So the first question is from Brock Dowis. And Brock says, hey, David, I know you are taking on exclusively debt investors to save yourself some time and effort in terms of getting everyone up to speed. I am curious, what would you consider to be favorable equity payouts on private lending, specifically for high-end flipping, $1.5 million plus? Alex, let's start with you. What do you think about that question? I think that really depends on having a conversation with the person that's going to be providing the capital. Uh, because really, realistically, if you are trying to use someone else's capital, figuring out what their pain point is, do they want steady cash flow? Are they lending because they need that cash flow to live off of? Or are they trying to get some, you know, a big payout lump sum, which would be more like equity investing? So when you talk about that, really, you want to talk with them about what their ultimate goal is, and then you can structure the deal in favor of what their goal is. Um, since you, since Brock specifically mentioned equity, the equity side would be something that's laid out in the operating agreement between you and whoever this other person is. So that can be fully negotiated as far as percentage of equity. Um, you might want to outline and let them know if they are asking for equity that they could get some of the downside too. Equity's not always up. You know, we're kind of in a strange time right now. So making them aware that there is a downside to being on the equity side where, yeah, it sounds great. You're going to get 20% of, you know, whatever the net profits are, but you might also be getting 20% of what the net losses are too. So that's why I say have, have a conversation with the person first. So important to acknowledge that the assumption is how high of a return can I get? Oh, if I can get equity in the deal, I can get it higher. You're also losing the floor when you lose the ceiling. And so that's very important to acknowledge. Beth, what say you? I generally like debt more than I like equity. I can see it in some circumstances where they want to offset the actual interest rate so that they can keep carrying costs low um, and then push that towards the equity side of things. But as an investor, 
I don't typically like that simply because I feel like that leaves too many cooks in the kitchen. And even though they're supposed to be playing a silent role or a passive role, there's so much vested into it that they can sort of meddle and that I've seen in certain circumstances. Um, and then as a lender, I truly like being in a passive role. That's why I choose being in a debt position as opposed to an equity position. They don't have, I don't have to care quite as much. So, you know, there's ways in which it works well for some people. It's just not something that I'm a, a super fan of just because it creates a little bit of conflict of interest. So I think you mentioned saying that you prefer the equity side. Did you mean you prefer the debt side in the beginning? Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, <laughs> the debt side. I, I might have heard you wrong, but you're saying you do prefer to, <laughs> to uh, bring in people as debt or sorry, as equity. No, I'm getting myself confused. You prefer to work with people who are coming into your deals as debt investors versus equity, correct? Correct. Yeah. And you made a very good point that as soon as somebody has equity in the deal, now they, there's almost an entitlement. This is my deal too. I want to use this color of flooring or I want to price the house here. Or can we use my cousin as the real estate agent? Have you seen some problems like that pop up with your deals? I have. I mean, from having that silent partner just show up on the job site, you may not even be there as the active investor and they're having conversations with the contractors. They're trying to make some decisions and insert themselves or calling and texting you from the location and wanting to know this and that. And it just becomes a little bit um, oh. cumbersome to say the least, right? Um, so yeah, I, I just choose to either be on the debt side or the equity side. Just makes things a little cleaner to know what your roles and responsibilities are. That sounds like you've got some good stories there for another time. <laughs> I have maybe. a lot of war stories to share. <laughs> some mine and some from my investors. <laughs> Rob, what do you think about this? Yeah, this is a tough one because I, I think it can go both ways. And it's obviously going to depend on what kind of transaction we're talking about. Is it a flip? Is it something that you're trying to buy long term? For example, I just bought a hotel. It's a 20 unit. And uh, we have an investor on that, but he's an equity partner on that. And that's a little bit of a different deal because he is incentivized strictly on the IRR and then the sale price that we'll have in three to five years once everything is stabilized. And that was really enticing to him, right? The, the possible cap rate in the exit there. And he wants to be a long-term partner too. But on the flip side of this, I guess if I were going to have it my way, Debt is always cheaper than equity in the long run, I think, you know, for most successful deals. And when you have someone in from an equity standpoint, that investor has a vested interest in the performance of that property. And thus, there's a little bit more emotion that I think can get mixed into that, which leads to too many cooks in the kitchen, too much micromanaging. Whereas from a debt standpoint, Obviously, there's the vested interest that they want you to pay them back and be successful, but it's very black and white. You get paid this. This is a guaranteed return from a debt standpoint. You'll get a 10% on your cash, whatever it is, whatever you agree on. And it's just a lot simpler and cleaner. I think that you can really keep the emotion out of that because it's just a much easier calculation to make and model for personally. Okay. Next question from Nadia Chase. Hello, David. I have a family member in Switzerland that is willing to partner with us. She is about to retire and is able to ask for a lump sum of money in advance. She said she is thinking about asking $100,000 and either lend us that money as a private lender for us or be a silent partner in one of our investments. We have some experience with private lending. We are not sure how to structure the silent partner option and if there are other things we would need to research when working with money that would come from outside the country. Finally, which of these two options would you recommend? Thank you a lot. Beth, what do you think? Well, I think we already discovered that, you know, debt is probably going to be cheaper and easier than having an equity position. 
That said, I think that there's some concerns on the legal and the tax side of things that they would need to shore up first before they entered into some sort of arrangement together legally. Uh, and first off, I, I want to retire and get access to $100,000 lump sum. I'm not sure how that works in Switzerland, but I should just call that out there because that's kind of fun. And um, so generally speaking for us, when it comes to creating um, joint venture agreements, we like to come up with at least a, an MOU or a memo of understanding that helps outline uh, the implications financially, roles and responsibilities, exit strategies, um, disillusion in some sort of structured legal arrangement. Um, but again, I think that there's some concerns just having them based in Switzerland and, and the folks being based in America that could have some um, challenges legally and tax-wise. Yeah, I actually want to mm. dive into that a little bit because I don't think I've really run across an MOU. Very intriguing. How is that really differing from a joint venture or from like an operating agreement? Because I feel a lot of that stuff is typically in those agreements, but what what's different from that? What differentiates them? Well, I'm not an attorney and we've had attorneys draft them up for us before, but I feel like there's a little bit more of a looser construct in terms of just outlining roles and responsibilities, what the capital inclusion might be. It's a little looser framework, mm. but it still has some legal parameters around it. I find oftentimes, especially with my borrowers that uh, we lend to, when we see their operating agreements, a lot of the times they're just canned. Uh, they're boilerplate templates that can be from, you know, online or from an attorney, but they don't really bake into the agreement what the specific scenario might be in terms of who's providing what capital, who does the uh, project management, who, how are you going to get your money back out? Um, is your capital going to be placed in as debt as opposed to being just your personal part of the project? So, MOUs are just how we've started the conversation and, and drafted them up um, in a legal framework. We've either um, notarized and signed those with the help of an attorney or they've been translated into uh, an operating agreement so that it's baked into something that's a little more specific to this particular venture. Alex, what's your thoughts on this? And I realize I read that question a little while ago. So if you need a refresher, let me know. <laughs> oh, no, I'm good. I think Beth pretty much handled the kind of the legal aspects. So the way I'm going to look at it actually is from a relationship standpoint. So anybody, I get questions like this a lot. You know, my best friend's cousin wants to start a real estate investing business. How do, what do I do? And I always tell people the fastest way to lose friends and family is to lend each other money. So this is someone who's, you know, in the family and it's retirement money. So a lot of people take that relationship for granted and be like, oh, you know, I trust them. Don't worry about it. You know, this is my aunt. You know, we're good. We don't need anything because we inherently trust each other because we're family. But in reality, that's probably the situations you need it the most. So like what Beth mentioned, where the framework's already in place, it's on paper, it's black and white. If this happens, then this other thing happens, and you're taking the emotion of the relationship out. So I would definitely say anybody that's thinking about investing with friends and family, even if they're outside of the country or inside of the country, take that into consideration that this, how valuable is this relationship to you? So if this goes bad, is that going to make Christmas dinner really awkward for the rest of your life? Because that might not be worth it. Yeah, it might be cheap capital, but what is it costing you in human capital? I, that is a great point. I've found the quality of relationship is always based on the expectations of the parties. And when you're working with someone close to you, in my experience, whether you're representing them selling their house or you're doing some form of business with them, 
they tend to look at it like you're going to give them something extra more than what everybody else gets. And and the person who's using the money is like, no, we have an agreement in place. This is a professional relationship. You're used to it from people that are expecting it to be professional. And I rarely have ever seen those expectations lower with family. You think it's going to be easier. It's probably easier to get into it, but it is much harder once you're there. So I, I like that advice. Maybe don't go with friends and family unless that's your only option. It would be better to find someone that you don't know that has more reasonable expectations. So last question. Hi, David and team. My husband and I have contacted several banks regarding lending parameters and have been unable to identify any lender who would provide a multifamily loan for house hacking with less than 20% down. Do you have a product that allows for less than 20% down towards a multifamily that would be our primary residence? Or do you have any advice about how we could go about acquiring one? Ladies, how do you feel about that? Well, I was going to punt back to David just simply because, I mean, I think that FHA loans can allow, but it's for one to three units. Um, But it's not something that you can technically do most often in a hard money or private money role because it has to be non-owner occupied. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to say the primary residence part is going to be the sticking point where, because that falls underneath federal regulations as opposed to non-owner occupied investment property falls under state regulations. And it's very different licensing requirements, very different limits. You know, there's a lot of consumer protection laws in place for primary residences. So that's, that's the difference we are running into. So at the one brokerage, we can do 15% down on a duplex, but three or four units, it's going to be 20% down even on a primary residence. That's a new change that was just made for conventional loans. And then you can still go FHA though. So, or FHA or VA, you can get those terms on multifamily housing. So one thing that people do is they'll use an FHA loan to get in and then they'll refinance into conventional, even if the rate isn't better. And then they have another FHA loan that they can use for a future property. So if you're willing to play that game, you can do it, but it is a little trickier because multifamily housing is what everybody wants to do for house hacking. It's the easiest way to get into that. And then these regulations were just changed, but it didn't necessarily drop the demand for multifamily housing down because there's so many people that are trying to park their money somewhere. They just did a 1031 exchange. They've got 400 grand they have to put somewhere. They're not going to go buy a single family house. They're going to buy a triplex. They're going to buy a fourplex. And so these things, at least in the areas that I invest in and work in, are just getting sucked off the market so fast. There's so much demand for those. So it's tricky for the person that was trying to get into the market, which is what most people that are listening to our podcast are looking to do so. What we recommend people do is instead of just going for multifamily housing, find a house with an ADU, find a house you can convert the garage, find a house that is sort of structured to where it can already be rented out as two units or three units. Uh, And many times those are in areas that are zoned for multifamily housing as well. Very good answers though. I'm impressed with everybody so far. Thank you guys for helping me there. All right, that was our show. I hope you liked it. I know it's been a while since we've had a seeing green, so I just wanted to say we're back, and I appreciate you guys being here. Please, again, let us know on YouTube in the comment section what you think, what you'd like to see more of, what you enjoyed, and maybe what you didn't enjoy so we can avoid doing that in the future. You could follow me online. I'm at davidgreen24. Check out my Instagram. That's what I am on Facebook. It's what I am on Twitter, LinkedIn, pretty much everywhere. Or I'm on YouTube at David green real estate so youtube.com slash david green real estate and then please like and share and subscribe to the bigger pockets youtube channel share this with everyone you know so that we can reach more people appreciate you guys if you have any questions you can message me through bigger pockets or on my social media and i will see you on the next one
The market is changing and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom and the best investors know it's not about timing the market. It's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into the real estate investing game or take your game to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com deals and enter a few details about what and where you want to buy and bam, instantly match with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com deals. That's biggerpockets.com deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.